been going on with that. I've, I've got a thousand things I would love to tell you about the piece there, but uh, let's get on with the message. There is a growing and to me alarming trend among people both still in worldwide and in some who have left it and now are in other groups or otherwise scattered. Now the first clue is if it's a trend in worldwide, it should be immediately sniffed for rottenness. But the trend is to believe that the calling of God is not exclusive to the worldwide church of God, that other religions contain some who will be in the first resurrection, that since love is the greatest thing, many of these people and other groups, other organizations of the world, exhibit agape love, and therefore will be included despite their doctrinal positions. Worldwide Church of God, of God has gone so far as to formally join with the Protestant movement, figuring they're included with the multiple millions who will be saved at the first resurrection, or even perhaps go to heaven in a rapture. That's how far they've gone with it. Many who've left worldwide do not take it this far, but the scattering has had an effect here. And some seem confused, and some others they feel may be included from other religions. A recent theory I heard was that Worldwide Church of God was only one of the Revelation 2 through 3 churches, and that the Seventh-day Adventists are another branch, that the Seventh-day Baptists are possibly a branch, that the Messianic Jews are a branch, and I don't know how, how they filled out the exact seven, but they felt that these are all churches of God, and that Worldwide Church of God was not exclusive really in any way, in that sense. They cite John 10, 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. What does this mean? What does John 10, 16 mean? How does it fit into the picture? Does he suddenly include people in all these other folds of the world, or does he not? On the other hand, there are other groups who still feel, still feel very exclusive to the point of saying not only are they the only Philadelphia group in God's church today, but the only ones that really count at all. But the others are either Laodicea or worse, not even part of the mix at all. They feel a need to finish preaching the gospel if Herbert Armstrong did not finish. They base this on Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel shall be preached around the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. Uh, he finished what he was doing, the end didn't come, and they feel that that work has to be finished. They are basing their finances, their future, on new converts who will join with them as co-workers and members to finish the work. They're depending on that, because as they add television and radio stations, add magazines and various things, they need more money in order to fulfill the effort that they feel must be accomplished. On the other hand, it now appears that, without exception, every one of those groups is both struggling financially and is steadily losing, not gaining, in numbers of people. Secondly, their efforts are producing very little new growth. I won't say none. They are getting a few people, just as we, once in a while, get someone who knows a family member who comes in, and perhaps those are coming in the 11th hour. 
or at 11.30 or 11.45 or whatever time it is, I'm not sure. Now, if Herbert Armstrong failed miserably at finishing preaching the gospel to all peoples and then the end would come, how big would these organizations have to become in order to finish the work they perceive has to be done? Because obviously the Worldwide Church of God was not big enough, not powerful enough, to do what they feel needed to be accomplished. Therefore it would seem that they think or it would seem logical to assume that if they have to do a bigger work than that was done, they themselves have to become bigger than that. And that makes sense to me anyway. If you want to do a bigger work, you have to be bigger. Worldwide was what, up to about 8 million plane crews at one point at the, at the peak. Radio and television somewhat blanketed America and various other areas of the world. There were congregations worldwide. There were feast sites. I don't know how many feast sites there were. There must have been 40 or 50. Maybe more than that. I don't know at this point, but there were a lot of small ones around the world. And yet I think if you calculated the numbers, the billions of people there are on the face of this earth, far less than 1% ever had any kind of knowledge of the Worldwide Church of God, much less any real witness and an extended manner of teaching that could bring them to repentance or warn them of the kind of life they were living, a very minuscule portion of society, not every creature had that opportunity. Is it any wonder these business-as-usual churches figure that we must have 30 or 40 years left, maybe even two or three hundred years, I've heard some say, because to accomplish the kind of work that would preach the gospel to every creature based on the way it was being done would require a monster of a work. A question. Can there be many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions added to the first resurrection? How big is the first resurrection going to be. In the mind of God, does agape love overcome doctrinal truths to some degree and let some squeak in in spite of their, some paganism that they've been still incorporated into their thinking? The Seventh-day Adventists had the Sabbath, and we can go back in history, even Duggar and God and others, indicate that there was apparently some connection between true believers and the Seventh-day Adventists in the 1800s. Does that count enough to have them included? Ellen G. White was their main preacher and prophetess. The New Testament does allow for women prophetesses, but not preachers. She had a desolate earth theory, which I've read in The Great Controversy, which said all inhabitants of the earth would die. She was quoting from Isaiah, I forget exactly where in there. But if you go back and read the accounts she quoted from, it says they'll all die and few inhabitants left. And she just left that out to prove her theory. Now that's a lie. That's dishonorable. That's untrustworthy. That's breaking, I believe, Revelation 
as Revelation's final salutation about leaving out or adding in that which is convenient. I'm not talking about here a little, there a little, where we skip around in putting together a story from the Bible, because the Bible tells us to do that. But I'm talking about deliberately living out, leaving out things that prove your theory. Dishonest. The lie. They don't have the holy days. And if you don't have the holy days, you obviously don't even understand the plan of God. You don't understand the plan of salvation. Can you be included? Some of the biggest hospitals in the world are run by Seventh-day Adventists. I think of Loma Linda and San Bernardino, for instance. Is that something God's church should be doing? Let me, let me remind you, Simon Magus had some contact with the true church as well. Shared some of the beliefs, apparently. Shared enough of the beliefs that he was counseled and baptized. But Peter saw through him and wouldn't lay hands on him. He never received God's Spirit. Will he be included? The Pharisees had many doctrines, correct? Including the Sabbath, the Holy Days. Many, many things. The Pharisees and Sadducees had right. Are they included? If God is working through some Baptists, some Seventh-day Adventists, some Messianics, why bother with Herbert Armstrong at all? Why not just leave them there and feed them more Gothi until they had enough? And let them be in the first resurrection. What was the reason for all of this? Why did we have to come out of Seventh-day Adventist or out of Messianic? Why did we have to come out of Methodist or Baptist? Why did we have to come out of wherever we were? If we can be included and still be there. Why did we have to change all these things? Or did we have to change all these things? That is the thought that is beginning to grow, is that, well, they're not so bad, or this is okay, they don't have this right, but shucks, you know, they have a copy. Do you remember Herbert W. Armstrong? I do. I don't remember everything about him, but... I remember him saying over and only, This is the only true church of God! I'm the only one who's preached this for 1900 years! He was very exclusivist, was he not? Was he right? Who is right? The all comes gosh bunch? The exclusivists or the ultra-exclusivists? Does the gospel need to be preached? If so, by whom? How big does the effort need to be? I remind you one of the commonest reasons people have decided not to stay with us as a church, the Church of the Great God I'm speaking of now, or to join with us in the first place is that in their words, we don't plan to preach the gospel. Is that a valid reason? Because there might be other reasons not to be with us, but is that a valid one? Is love enough? How big a deal is correct doctrine? What in the world is God doing? 
Are those who still think God is only working with members or former members of the Worldwide Church of God wacky? Are they thinking too highly of themselves? These are big questions, so we will address them in sections. And I know that I've raised enough questions, I'm not going to get them answered up today. And having been around John Reitenbaugh this long, I probably will have a series. <laughs> well, let's ask the first question, how big does the church need to be? And I refer you to Luke 12, verse 32, where Christ said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, that's simple, isn't it? It's going to be little. But how big is little? How long is long? How short is short? How big is a little flock? This is a really interesting question. Uh, there, there are some scriptures that I had passed over somewhat in the past, wondered about at times, but I want us to go back to Exodus 20 to begin with, because here are the Ten Commandments. Now let's understand the setting of the Ten Commandments. We have estimated, I think probably fairly accurately, that between three and a half and six million people came out of Egypt during the Exodus. They got to Sinai, this whole great gaggle of people gathered before Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the mountain representing millions of people. God gave him the Ten Commandments that they were to live by. They did it twice, in fact. Let's go back to the Ten Commandments, which we still read. And there's a very curious verse in here. He talks about having no gods before him and not making graven images and not bowing ourselves down to them and showing that he visits the iniquity in verse 5 of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate, despise me, disrespect me. Now notice verse 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This was written to millions of people. And yet he said, I will show mercy to thousands who keep my commandments. It would almost seem to me that God didn't expect but a few thousands or many. This is a very formal declaration of his law, written on stone by the hand of God. And yet he said, showing mercy to thousands. I don't know how that made the millions feel, <laughs> but it's in there. Let's go to Exodus 34. Got those things for repetition. Exodus 34, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Repeats what he had said in the formal declaration. Showing mercy to thousands only. Can God count? Did he know how many people were there? Well, he counts as the head, hairs of our head. So he must be able to count. But he knew that there were millions, and yet he said thousands. Go to Jeremiah 32. Isaiah, Jeremiah, 32. 
here we'll see the same, essentially the same thing in verse 18. Jeremiah 32, 18. You show loving kindness unto thousands, and recompense the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, is his name. And here he's talking to people of Israel who are besieged. And he only addresses thousands again. That's three times that's repeated, so that should be enough to get the point across. Jesus referred to this same law in the New Testament over and over again. How do I enter into life? Keep the commandments. Which? Then he named them. Ten commandments over and over. He did not abridge them. He did not edit them. He's still talking to thousands, not millions. So apparently that's all that he expected to respond as they might be worked with. Now let's go to Acts 2. Acts 2. The setting here we describe to some degree on Pentecost. But let's understand that the world thinks that we're that God is in a war with the devil to save people. And that the devil's winning the war. Mr. Armstrong went over that over and over and over again and proved that that was not so. But if that were to be the case, let's look at Acts 2 in that light. The scene is set to save hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, as word spread. Jesus had just died less than two months before. When he died, there was a tremendous earthquake. It grew dark as night in the middle of the day. The veil of the temple itself was rent in two. That had to impress a lot of Jews. Why would the veil of the temple be rent in twain? That was big news, because they revered that temple very highly. And to open the Holy of Holies up to the vision of other people? Blasphemy! How fast that word must have spread through Jerusalem and to outlying areas. God, or somebody, exposed the Holy of Holies. What a scandal. People walked home from their graves, perhaps with clods hanging from their ears, I don't know. Tattered and rotten clothes hanging on their bodies. Scared people half to death when Uncle Henry walked in. <laughs> These were astounding events, earth-shaking events. Jesus resurrected three days later, at least according to the rumor I heard. I don't know how many people believe it, but that's the rumor that went around town. What happened? Let's go to Acts 2. I mean, we're already there, aren't we? You are. I didn't go. But here, 50 days later, essentially, a little longer than that from the time he, was, he died, but on Pentecost, to add to the drama of the situation, here were those same followers of Christ who were sitting in a room for who knows why, keeping Pentecost. Well, the Jews kept that, so that would have made sense. But suddenly clothes of fire, or cloven tongues of fire, scared people. They went through the whole city like wildfire that this had occurred. People speaking in languages they'd never heard of. I find there are 11 
official languages in South Africa. And no telling how many dialects did worldwide reach all those people? Oh, there was a broadcast available. There was a plain truth available. Do you think all those people with their native tongues ever read any of that or had that witness? It's a huge work to do if it is to be done the way some think it needs to be done. Now, this leads up to Acts 2.41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, here is the biggest and best and finest conversion day before or since. Tremendous, dramatic, earth-shaking events, and only 3,000 were baptized. That always sounded like a lot of people for a day's work to me. But then when you put it in this context, it seems pretty small. That with this kind of miracles, only 3,000 believed what was going on. Acts 4.4. 4. How did many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So, it doesn't say for sure here, maybe you could read research a little better and find out whether this was added to the 3,000 or an additional 5,000 plus women who may have been converted as well. But either way you count it, you don't have more than 8,000 men plus women so far. That isn't a big number. You know, look at a Billy Graham crusade. at 100,000 a night. Acts 6-7. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Now, what does that mean? Acts 10.31. We'll piece it together a little bit here. Acts 10.31. Wait a minute. Maybe I wrote that down wrong. Anyway, I'll tell you what it said. I'm not being LNG white here. Uh, it says the church is multiplied. Acts 18.10. Let's see if I got that one right. Acts 18, 10. For I am with you, and no man shall set on you to hurt you, for I have much people in this city. Christ speaking to Paul in a vision. So much people. And you go through and you, you add up all these places where it says multiplied greatly, much people, the church is multiplied, so on and so forth. And in Acts 21, that's quite a ways on over now from Acts 2, a lot of history had occurred. Acts 21 and verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. So multiplication had occurred. Some cities had much people, etc., etc., and yet they were still speaking in terms of how many thousands. Now you would normally think that if they're going to talk about big numbers and people get excited about numbers, if there have been tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, you would think Paul would say so. But no, it's still listed as thousands. How big was it? Well, maybe thousands could include 80,000, I don't know. But from the numbers we get here from the best day, and then you add those who were added later on, and you don't seem to have that kind of numbers adding up. Let's add a little to that now. Going to Romans 16. Romans 16, a little different direction, but 
essentially the same thing, Romans 16, 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now, how big a congregation is that? We had 23 meeting in our house in South Africa, and it was getting close to capacity. Didn't have room for many more thousands or hundreds of thousands in that house. 23. Colossians 4. These scriptures you're familiar with, but I want to put this together to form a picture. Colossians 4 and verse 15. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Memphis, and the church which is in his house. So perhaps the whole church of Laodicea was meeting in one house, in one town. Did they have houses full of people everywhere? I doubt it, because if they came together to hear the truth, they would come to one place because they didn't have a lot of ministers, I don't think. So apparently the church in Laodicea was not all that big. Philemon 2. Philemon 2. And to our beloved Apia and Archippus, fellow soldiers, and to the church in your house. So they were meeting in homes. Well, take a cross-section of the church of the great God. I just heard the roll call here. One, two, three, four, eight, seven, twenty-two. On and on it goes. That's the kind of numbers that meet in houses. If it gets much bigger than that, the auditors get the flu and people meet somewhere else. Because there's too many for their house. I guess. But you're in a hall. If it gets much bigger, there just isn't room in a house to put everyone. The speaker stands in the corner with his Bible supposed he can't read. Now let's go to uh, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. And verse 1. Even apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the church was scattered all over. I didn't include it, but if you go to the conference they had in Rome where they discussed uh, the matter of circumcision and so on. The ministry that was there, the people were there. Couldn't have been too big a meeting, I don't think. So the church in the early New Testament was not all that big. I don't know whether it amounted to 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Everywhere. I mean, it's just a guess, but from the numbers we're looking at here, I don't think it was too large. Second Peter 2. Now let's change the direction a little bit. Second Peter 2. And let's see what happens to even that number. Let's say there were 50,000 people, and I don't believe that that is credible. But let's say there were 50,000 scattered through Rome and Corinth and Laodicea and all over. Possibility, I suppose. Second Peter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envies and all evil speakings. Oh, wait a minute. I'm in First Peter 2. I knew that didn't sound right. True, but let's move over to where I want it. Uh, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many 
shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So many would depart, even if there were 50,000. What's going on? It's really wild. Maybe there were 100,000. Well, here are 125. The point is, it was not millions of people. The Bible, all the way through here, speaks of thousands. And many would follow the perniciousness of false leaders. Uh, there's 20 of the same chapter. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse within than the beginning. So Peter uses this thing quite a bit. The people would be falling away from the truth. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, the second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, and both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you be, may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming, and so on and so forth. So some would begin to scoff. Some would depart. First John 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. John thought it was. He saw the church falling apart the way we see the church falling apart. And he thought this was the end. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are there many. Now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So John saw the same thing happening. Second John 7 and 8. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we have that we receive a full reward. A warning that you can lose it, and many were losing it. Go to Jude 3, just across the page in my Bible. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lawlessness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So James, Peter, John, Jude, all of them wrote about how the church was falling apart because it was being taken away. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Be just a little bit more along this line. 2 Thessalonians 2, I'll start here in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except, the, except there come a falling away first, skip down to verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. So Paul was facing this as well. What's the point? The point is that even the thousands of the early New Testament, many fell away from the truth before the church fled the fellow, and soon thereafter were scattered and virtually disappeared. 
gone. When the curtain came up after the end of the first century, following John's death, you saw a totally different church. Uh, Mr. Armstrong used to talk about that a great deal, and how Simon Magus had begun a counterfeit church, the Catholic church, and it did not even resemble that church which the apostles left. The Catholics had taken over, they had syncretized paganism into the name of Christ. Now we are led to believe by some of the historians, I'm sure you read Fox's Book of Martyrs uh, years and years and years ago when it hit the church back in the 50s and 60s, it was heavy, hot reading. And we were led to believe that those many thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who were killed from there through the Middle Ages were Christians who are waiting right now to be resurrected when Christ returns to be part of his kingdom in the first resurrection. I don't believe that for a moment, and I think I can prove it. Those people were sincere. You've got to be pretty sincere to go in the lion's den. Does that mean they were right? Does that mean they were in the first resurrection? They weren't true Christians. They were syncretized pagans who had brought their religion right in with them when they came in and accepted the name of Christ. They believed enough to die for that which was a lying gospel. This is nothing new in history, by the way. Many, many people have died for causes Right now, we see Arabs blowing themselves up to kill a few Jews in Israel. They believe in their cause. Do they go to heaven when the dynamite goes off? Or will they be in the first resurrection? No. We'll see that. Let's look at some scriptures now. And ask the question again, how many will be in the first resurrection? How many are included as first fruits? Who are the first fruits? Well, let's start in Romans 8. Romans 8, <clears throat> verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, speaking of Christ. So he is the first of the first fruits, or the first of the firstborn. He is already born into the kingdom of God as the first. Now go back to verse 23. And not only, let's see, wait a minute now, I might want to pick this up a little earlier. Oh, that's right, verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul included himself as a first fruit, and he included the people in the church that he was speaking to as first fruits. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Notice he uses the word redeemed here. We'll see that come up a little later. So he included himself, along with Christ, as firstfruits, and that there would be many. Now let's go to John 6. Well, let's don't go to John 6.44. I'll just quote it for the sake of time. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. So it has to be a specific calling, James 1.18. We'll drive that point in a little bit, James 1.18. Of his own will 
begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now that implication is that if we be the first fruits of his creatures, there have to be fruits which follow that. Otherwise, it's just the fruits. Not a first and a later. Now that I've turned away from Romans, I'll go back there to chapter 11. Keep you clipping here. And verse 4. Romans 11, 4. But what says the answer of God to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Still speaking of a few thousand here. When Elijah thought he was the only one. But the point I want to make is consistent with the other verses we've read. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, when Paul was writing, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So 7,000 was a remnant. And he said then that there is a remnant of grace. Doesn't say exactly how many, but he uses that 7,000 as an example. Verse 16. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And then he talks about some branches being broken off from the first fruits. And God would not spare the natural branches, but they might be broken off. And he talks about the goodness and severity and severity of God here. He goes on down in verse 26 and says, And so all Israel shall be saved. When? With the first fruits? Or not? What does he mean by that? Well, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll see a little more here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So he's talking about the first resurrection here, and goes on in the chapter to show that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, when Christ returns, that the firstfruits, the dead in Christ, will rise. So that shows who will be first. The spring harvest, not the fall harvest. Pentecost. Pentecost is our day, and Feast of Trumpets is our day. They come together. That is, the first fruits. And I think we can include, since Paul did the early New Testament church, the New Testament church includes the first fruits. So even us here at the end would be included in that, since we're part of the New Testament church. Never died out, we're still part of it. Uh, Revelation 20. He's probably gone over this recently at the last great day. But here he shows, verse 5, But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So the first resurrection occurs, he says here, when Christ returns, but the rest of the dead didn't live at that time. They're not included as first fruits. Then we could go to Ezekiel 37, which I won't, and shows that the whole house of Israel will come to a physical resurrection and be given an opportunity of salvation once the fullness of the Gentiles is in, and so forth. Now what does Paul say? <clears throat> Let's uh, nail this a little bit more. Back in Hebrews 12, verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, made mature. So it's not just y'all come. Uh, there has to be maturity 
achieved. There has to be something that occurs. We call it sanctification. But he does talk about the church of the firstborn. What did Christ say? I will build my church, not churches. And the gates of the grave will not prevail against it. So it's one gospel, one church. Now, Hebrews 11 shows that there are others included. I won't go through the, the list here, but he names 12 or 15 or 20 individuals. And then he talks about women who received their dead, raised to life again in verse 35, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, verse 36. Some were stoned, sawed asunder, tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And this was probably also fulfilled after Paul wrote it uh, during the Middle Ages, where they also had to flee to the mountains at times. But it's interesting to show that, verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They will not receive the reward until we receive ours. We're talking about some big names here. Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Rahab, David. Important people in the plan of God. So they are included in the first verse. How many? I don't know. He names some individuals and then names others. Maybe there were a thousand, two thousand, three thousand God worked with out of the Old Testament. Seven thousand Elijah mentioned, or he mentioned to Elijah. Not a big number. covenant was not even formally offered to Israel. But God worked with a few individuals. So we have to include those in the first fruits as well. So now what do we have? We've got the early New Testament church, those in the Middle Ages, those in the end time church, and those from the Old Testament are all included as first fruits. We must be getting up to millions by now, huh? I don't think so. Let's go on. Here is a curious scripture. This is Old Testament. Deuteronomy 33. Clear back here. Deuteronomy 33. Verse 2. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir to them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Yes, he loved the people. All his saints are in your hand. And they sat down at your feet. Everyone shall receive of your word. Israel was again millions. But here it talks about 10,000 of saints. Curious expression. Keep it in mind. We'll see it soon. We tie to Exodus 20. 1 Thessalonians 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. This is a real good 
Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13. Now, this is talking about Jesus Christ returning to this earth, the vesture dipped in blood, riding on a white horse, sword in hand. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 in mind. To the end, verse 13, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, the holiness is required, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So when he comes, he's going to include all his saints. We just read about tens of thousands. We're back in Deuteronomy 33. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. This one may not be a real strong proof, but it's an interesting one. Song of Songs. I think we're all pretty fairly familiar with the imagery here in the Song of Songs in which Christ and his church are very obviously referred to. First, in Song of Songs 5, verse 10, well, verse 9, she begins to describe her beloved. My, my beloved, verse 10, is white and ruddy, the cheapest among 10,000. Huh. He's the cheapest. He's the firstest. The firstborn, the first of the first fruits. And here he's listed with not millions, not billions, but 10,000. Maybe not just limited to 10,000. I don't know whether I can tie this in completely or not, but, uh, but the number's interesting. Now let's go to Jude. And if you remember what we just covered a, a minute ago, Jude will just leap out at you, and probably already does, because you already probably know the scripture. Uh, Jude 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Now, we just read in 1 Thessalonians 3 that he's coming with all his saints. And here we read he's coming with ten thousands of his saints. So all his saints have to amount to tens of thousands. That's all. Not hundreds of thousands, not millions, tens of thousands. Now let's go to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. So this is Christ coming down to Mount Zion. And with him, a hundred forty-four thousand. Not plus or minus. One hundred forty-four thousand. Now, did we not read that when he comes, he's coming with all his saints? Did not Jude tell us he's coming with tens of thousands of saints? And now we read here 144,000 precisely. I still reckon that is tens of thousands. Once you get up to 200,000, then you're talking of hundreds of thousands. But up until then, you can still talk about tens of thousands, because 100,000 is not hundreds of thousands. Am I playing semantics here? I don't really think so. 
because I think what Jude said when he said that, he was referring to tens of thousands. He read these scriptures in the Old Testament. That's what he was familiar with. That's where he got his numbers. Plus, he may have asked Christ. I don't know. So 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne. So here we have a new song. Does that remind you of Revelation 2 through 3, somewhere in there? White rock and new songs and so on. New language. They sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. Didn't we read back in Deuteronomy about redemption of thousands? So he's lumping together here all those which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with other women, other churches, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Who travels with John when he goes somewhere? One of the men in the congregation, one of the grandchildren, takes his wife along. When I travel, I take my wife along. These go with Christ wherever he goes. Now, who are they? These were redeemed from among men. So, of, of the men on the earth, these were those who were redeemed at this point in time. From among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. I don't know how it could be any clearer than that, but the first fruits are 144,000 people. And we've already seen what groups those were drawn from. Old Testament saints, New Testament converts. Can God count? Does he know how to count? These are the first fruits. No man can learn except this number. Chapter 9, verse 16, God numbers a 200 million man army. So if he can count to 200 million, and John could see them there in the vision, and knew how many there were, that he must be able to count to 144,000, brethren. It just makes sense to me. Now let's go back to chapter 5 and verse 11 of Revelation. Chapter 5, well, let's begin up in uh, verse 8, the, the last part of it. talks about the prayers of the saints, and they sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So there are first fruits from all kinds of places. And we had converts in the Worldwide Church of God from all kinds of places, as they did uh, in the early New Testament church, because Peter wrote to the scattered people. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth, Verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels, this is John speaking, round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands. So one hundred million plus thousands of millions. Could be numbered. Now he's talking here not about people or saints, but about angels, beasts, and elders. And they could be counted. 
I'm just making a simple point here and taking a lot of time to do it, and that is that God knows how to count. And when he said there's 144,000, he has it all figured out. Now, those numbers are important, too, because God uses 12 as a foundational number. 12 tribes, 12 apostles will be ruling the 12 tribes on and on. Go back to Isaiah and it talks about how the 12 tribes will be reinstituted. So when he says 12,000 times 1,000 in each tribe times 12, you've got 144,000 as a foundational number of the government of God. Makes absolute sense based on the, the numbers in the Bible. These are the first fruits. They're redeemed or bought, purchased with the blood of Christ, and that's all. Now let's go to 17 and verse 14. Chapter 17 and verse 14. He shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him, those who come with him when he returns, are called and chosen and faithful. That's an interesting sequence. And it is a diminishing number as the sequence is carried forward. Many will be called, but few chosen. And I think the implication here is even fewer will be faithful. We used to watch the attendance figures, and some would speculate in worldwide. Well, how many are coming to the feast now? How many do we have on the list of actual baptized members? And the thought was that, well, maybe when it gets up to 144,000, God will shut the doors, nobody can get in or get out, and we'll all jump up and run to a place of safety. Because that's the 144,000. Now, Mr. Armstrong, as John has mentioned before, changed his mind three or four times about who the 144,000 in combination with the, um, I lost the word, senior moment the uh, innumerable multitude, who, who that was, and what, what that whole mix consisted of. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and I don't know that I have the answer all nailed down, but I wanted to submit this to you, the kind of numbers that God is talking about. Now, what happened when we reached about 150,000 in total attendance in the church, men, women, children, dogs, and cats, and whoever they wanted to stay was there? the way you play with numbers uh, to, to get the most out of what you got. About the time we got up there, what happened? <laughs> it started coming apart. Why? We were right up there close to the numbers that we're discussing here. I'm going to save that for next time. I don't have time to get into it. But now let's look at the pattern we've been seeing emerge today and looking at all these different scriptures. We're talking about a few people. We're talking about a few thousand people. We get up to tens of thousands of people. We get up to 144,000 people. And that's all. We'll deal with the innumerable multitude later. But we're talking about what the Bible says is the first verse. All the saints with it. Is this getting exclusive or what? Is this a specially called, particularly trained, royal priesthood of an exact number? 
But he called many, and he's chosen few. And I submit to you. But when we reached about 150,000, God said, that's all I need to call. And then he began choosing out of that. And he's still going through the choosing process. He's sifting, he's sorting, he's trying, he's testing. The numbers are dwindling. Many called, few chosen. When it says many called, I think you have to fit that into the framework of these numbers we've been reading about in the Bible today. But that's how many he called. Didn't call more than that. And that's the number he's working with. So when you include how many ever there were, whether it were a thousand or a few thousands in the Old Testament, and the thousands in the early New Testament church through the Middle Ages, including the number today, once it is all finally sifted and sorted out here, God is going to have exactly 144,000 included in all the saints who come to with him as first fruits. Well, maybe 143,999 and himself. But I suspect it's probably 144,000 because he says, those are they and I am he. So it's he plus the 144,000 who are in the first resurrection. How can you include Fox's Book of Murders, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Messianics, but too many can't work with that number in, this, in these numbers. What about the innumerable multitude that no man can count? Now that's something in addition to this. He said, after this I looked and saw them. After this. Now we can count to 200,000 fairly easily. We can count, or John could count to 100 million plus other millions pretty easily. The United States has more than 200 million people. We count them every 10 years. We get it probably fairly accurate. We can count that far, but this is a number no man can name. Okay, in the first resurrection, where do they fit? Where does this all go? What about other sheep not of this fold? Where do they fit in? I'll continue this in three weeks from Chicago, God willing. End of transmission.